Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White. And I'm Dr. Mika Petucci. And, and this, this is, is The Science of Motherhood. Motherhood. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of the podcast. Thank you. If you are a first-time listener, thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoy this episode and thank you so much. If you are a long-time listener as well, you will know that I'm your co-host, Dr. Renee White. Sometimes I have another co-host, Dr. Mika Batucci, who kind of is just starting back at work after maternity leave with her second bubba. And we are the co-founders of Fill Your Cup. So we are postpartum doulas here in Melbourne and Hobart, Australia. And essentially, we look after newborn mums who are overwhelmed and sleep deprived and are eating toast and Tim Tams for breakfast, lunch and dinner. So <laughs> we are very passionate about caring for our mummers here in Victoria and Tasmania and we don't do it alone. We have a team of doulas or our doula village, so big shout out to Amanda and Georgie and Caitlin and Samara and Kate and we provide in-home service where in each three-hour session we make our mamas delicious, nutrient-rich meals. We fold that stack of washing, settle your baby while you rest and lend a non-judgmental ear when you've had a really tough night. So we provide, you know, feeding guidance and emotional and practical support and, you know, beautiful head and shoulder rubs and some light housework and and things like that. So if you are pregnant or you've just had a new baby and you're feeling a bit overwhelmed with everything that's going on, please feel free to reach us at ifillyourcup.com or DM us on Instagram at fillyourcup underscore and we can organise a chat to help you out and support you and provide you with that village that you absolutely need to thrive in motherhood. And with that, today is a really exciting day. We have opened our pre-orders for our very first Fill Your Cup products and this is a long time coming. We have been making two of, well, actually all three of them we've been making for quite some time, but Definitely one of them, which was the first kind of staple dish in our FYC Mama menu, were our choc goji lactation cookies. Now, we were making these (laughs) rolling biscuits and baking and everything for the Mamas of Melbourne, and we decided that we wanted to get these out to more Mamas across Australia. We had such amazing feedback from so many women about these lactation cookies, whether it be about taste or that it's helping their supply. And we just thought we need, we need to bring this to the people, <laughs> essentially. So we've got our Chocoji lactation cooking mix, which is now on pre-order, all organic ingredients. So you can make these cookies fresh at home. Tell me, like, honestly, Tell me what a better smell is than fresh cookies at home. Oh, wait. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) And we also have our creamy coconut dal mix, which is first in market to contain organic chicken bone broth already in the mix. So not only are you getting that beautiful fiber and those fragrant Indian spices in your dal mix, but you're also getting that beautiful boost of replenishing collagen from the organic chicken bone broth, which is going to aid in tissue repair. So hello, sore cha-cha or your sun roof baby scar, that 
chicken bone broth is going to be doing you wonders. And then we also have our postpartum recovery sits, which contains over seven different botanicals to help inflammation and antimicrobial effects and also just relax you because we've got some beautiful lavender and chamomile in there as well. So as I said, those pre-orders have gone live today. You can purchase those products individually or as a bundle and we are shipping Australia-wide at present. So without further ado, who do we have on the podcast today? Today, it's such an exciting, I, oh man, I loved this interview. So we've got Dr. Jessica Stokes Parrish on the podcast today. And Jess, she just epitomizes everything that we stand for here at Fill Your Cup and is also, I guess, she has the same motivation as us as to why we started this podcast. This podcast was you know, conceived as an idea where we wanted to ensure that from our background as scientists, Mika and I are both, both have a PhD in biochemistry and we saw a lot of, and I talk about this in the episode with Jess, a lot of fluff, (laughs) as we term it, on the internet and things that just weren't factually correct. And what we do know is that particularly for newborn mothers, there is a complete brain remodeling when you have your baby. And in that, there's some evolutionary kind of mechanisms behind it. You need to become more empathetic. Your EQ goes through the roof. You need to be more adaptable and you need to be more open to the external and environmental factors. So I guess you become a a bit more of an open soul, as as they would say. And, and with that, you absorb a bit more information and your body takes on a lot more going on. I mean, that is fundamentally one of the reasons why, as mothers, we find it incredibly difficult to switch off and relax. Our brain just keeps running and running and running because we're constantly taking in all the information around us, whether it be temperature or light or noise or, you know, kind of visual things. It's all happening. And the reason behind it as an evolutionary mechanism is because we are there to protect our children. And so we need to be perceptive to those changes in our environment. So fast forward, you know, from cave woman to 2022, some of the downfalls with that, I guess, in my opinion, is that we spend a lot of our time on social media and we take in that information and perhaps, you know, in our sleep deprived state and we're, we are, we are vulnerable as newborn mothers, is that we take in information that is quite possibly not factually correct. And in some instances, that triggers us to think, oh my goodness, I should be doing X or I'm not doing a good enough job or, you know, that classic, I'm not the good enough mother, I should be doing something else or something that actually just puts the fear of God into us and questions everything that we have been doing and saying and what have you. And so that is why Mika and I wanted to start this podcast. That is why we interview experts and researchers and academics, people who have been in their field for a long, long time and who are very well versed in factual information, which is evidence-based. And that is also the premise for Jess. So Jess has a wonderful account on Instagram, which is just essentially her name, J underscore underscore Stokes Parish. That's S-T-O-K-E-S-P-A-R-I-S-H. And on that platform, she pretty much just brings awareness around demystifying science and how to spot red flags online. And she is able to do this because she has a wonderful background. And again, we talk about context and and looking at people's scope and things like that. So Jess is a practicing intensive care nurse and educator. She holds a PhD in medicine and 
She's got over 10 years of experience with bedside nursing and also exploring educational design for healthcare professionals, quality improvement science for better patient outcomes and advocating for diversity in the health workforce. And and with that, she has... I guess identified similar to us that there was a lot of fluff going on the internet. And as we describe in the podcast, you hear her talk about the fact that she didn't want to just keep shouting. Well, she wasn't shouting. She felt like other people were shouting. And so she developed this amazing framework for people to become educated and empowered when they're looking at things on the internet and thinking, is this factually correct? Is this not correct? How do I determine this? What's going on here? So as you'll hear, we talk about this wonderful framework that she's created called CRABS, (laughs) which (laughs) we do have a giggle about that as well. We also talk about, which I thought was really, really valuable, how to have difficult conversations with people about science and, you know, controversial topics and and how do you how do you talk to someone if they have like a completely different opinion to yourself and we run into this scenario with our current clients you know for example your new baby's coming home and you want to talk to people about possibly being vaccinated before they come and visit the baby how do you have those discussions with those people and then finally we wrap up with something that I think is going to become a own its own beast in another podcast but plagiarism so running through some of the myths and misnomers when it comes to that but I hope you enjoy this podcast Jess is just an absolute wealth of knowledge when it comes to this this is her oh it is it is such a passion for her and you can tell by the way she talks about it you know she's not getting any financial gain out of this whatsoever she's just so excited to as I said educate and empower the public as we are and and I think she is possibly going to become a bit of a mainstay on on this podcast I'd love to have her as as one of our FYC community so Without further ado, here is Dr. Jessica Stokes Parrish. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Jess, how are you? Good, thank you, Renee. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat and um, get to know you a little bit more. And, oh, you know, yes. <laughs> Well, as we've kind of said offline, we're pretty informal. We keep it fun. We keep it exciting here. I think that's what, it's definitely the feedback that we get from the listeners that although we talk about sciencey stuff, we're breaking it down and everyone's kind of understanding what's yeah. what's happening. And as everyone have heard from the introduction, you are a mama of two and you are a practicing intensive care nurse and educator mm-hmm. who holds a PhD in medicine. Now, we're going to talk about that. Can you just give us a brief introduction, Jess? I Like, you fascinate me and I love your vibe on socials. You are, I was saying this to Mika the other day, I said, oh, I've got this amazing woman coming on the pod. She's not, she's not like kind of in your face and uh, like kind of all obstructive and everything, but you just... I feel like you epitomize everything about our podcast, like breaking down the myths and misconceptions and calling out, this is not expletive, the fluff <laughs> on social media. <laughs> yeah, keep it G-rated, keep it G-rated. I've got to check that box in my platform to say whether I've dropped any expletives. But you are dynamite (laughs) and I love your content. I love the stuff that you talk about. So before we go deep dive into that, who is Dr. Jess? Tell us a bit about your backstory and how you got to where you are today. Okay. Um, That's all very (laughs) flattering, such kind words. (laughs) So yeah, so mum of two, I'm an ICU nurse and I work as an academic on the Gold Coast at Bond University at the moment. Yeah, my journey has been a very interesting one. I I very strongly, um, when I talk about my identity, I'm a nurse first. That's who I am. And that's a really important part of who I am and how I present 
because I think, you know, nursing, there's so much history to nursing. And so many people think of Florence Nightingale and the lady with the lamp <laughs> and bedpans and, yeah. you know, nursing so much more than that. And nursing is so much more than being by the bedside, even though that's an important part of it. So that's kind of, that's like one part of the journey. And I always knew I loved education, always have loved edu- education. And I guess I had really... I had some interesting moments during my undergrad degree that I thought, oh, you mm-hmm. know, education should be fun, education should be accessible, and it just should be something that people want to come back for more. And so that's really shaped my journey. I worked in oncology first, and that really burnt me out. I got um, too overwhelmed as a 19 year old mm-hmm. being with dying people all the time. And it just, I had to go to ICU where no <laughs> one could talk to me. <laughs> yeah. So, so I went to ICU and then got, I had this moment one night and I was talking with a colleague and I was like, I can't do these yeah. night shifts for the rest of my life. I've got to get out of this. Mm-hmm. So I moved into simulation teaching and um, using simulation. So role plays and all of that kind of stuff in medical education. And one day my boss said to me, you know, if you like this education business, you'll have to do a PhD. Oh, the you'll have to do a PhD chat. Oh, <laughs> and how did like, that go, Jess? <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? Why would I have to do that? I've got, I don't have any like um, <laughs> lab dishes or benches that I can go to and do. And she was like, no, that's not a PhD. Well, it is in my in my world. <laughs> it is. <laughs> I know, like that is a PhD, but that's not yep. all the PhDs. And I was like, oh, okay. So that was kind of my my journey. And then I, I've gone a bit of a meandering path. I've worked in health outcomes in the hospital setting. I've done nursing, lecturing, a whole bunch of different things. And I think all of those things have shaped mm-hmm. how I've approached education. My, you know, one of my biggest philosophies is shame is not an effective yeah. method of education. And that we should consider that everyone that wants to partake in a conversation about learning is intelligent, wants to do their best, is here to improve and and comes with, you know, good faith. So that's kind of, yeah, I think that's how my education journey began. And yeah, so now I work full-time teaching into medicine. I do a lot of curriculum development and you know, how do we design our education? And and then I work in a hospital uh, one day a week because that's really important to me is staying in touch with the real world. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that. Oh, okay. So many questions. Uh, first, <laughs> what did you end up doing your PhD on? Yeah, so my, my PhD explored how visual cues and simulations mm-hmm. can help engage a learner. Oh, so I actually use special effects makeup. Wow. Yeah, so very wild, very out there. And to be honest, I thought, why on earth would anyone use special effects makeup in teaching? How is there any, like, validity to this? Yeah. So I was a true sceptic and, and that was my PhD. So it took me about four and a half years to complete mm-hmm. and I basically did a, a randomised controlled trial to look at how undergraduate students responded to different levels of authenticity mm-hmm. in portrayal of simulations. Mm-hmm. So if for anyone that's listening that's been involved in the simulation, if you're a health professional or whatnot, you'll know that sometimes it's really hard to engage in simulations because they look fake mm-hmm. and you're sitting there kind of laughing and going, this is all not yeah. really real. And so I was really interested in exploring, like, does it need to be authentic? How authentic do we need to make it? What does the learner think when they're engaging with this? That's amazing. And what were the some of the outcomes from that? So we did uh, some of the outcomes where I guess that if you're going to make things, if you're going to make any effort, make effort to do it well. Mm-hmm. Students value your effort in making things look more authentic because they perceive that as you caring about your teaching. Yeah. So they would go, well, if they've if my educators put that much effort, then I should take this seriously. Yeah. Um, but the other really interesting one to me was that when the makeup was very authentic, it made the students look at the patient more. Interesting. So there's some hypotheses, like it's not quite proven yet in this field, but there's hypotheses around how many times people look at someone in the eyes and the face as a proxy for empathy. 
Mm-hmm. So the more you look at someone in the face is kind of an indicator that you, you're expressing empathy for that individual. Oh, wow. And I think, I think that's really important as well because you hear stories around doctors or healthcare professionals who clearly are very intelligent individuals, but then, like, and I've experienced it myself and with my daughter, just some of the bedside manner. And as you say, that eye contact, it's it's like, are you even here? Like, do you even care to be here? Are you just running off a mill of like, oh, yeah, she'll be fine. Just do this. Go home. Do that. that." And then you walk out going, hold on a minute. Like, I've just waited three hours in emergency for this and you've brushed me off with a five-minute see you later alligator kind of, you know, call us or come back if you've got an issue. So, yeah, I think they're all really valid kind of points. I love that. Hmm. What drew you to education? Was there something... Like, have you always enjoyed it or was there kind of a mentor or was there a moment in your life where you, where maybe you experienced that person in front of you who was educating you and clearly they put in so much time and effort? Yeah, definitely. I think one of my first memories of uni was in the very first week of my lectures, the lecturer cancelled. In, in the very first week of uni. And I remember being like, what, like, what do you, you know, you've, we've turned up, we're waiting here. And so I think for me, it's, I had moments where, you know, you could tell that the educator, one, they knew their stuff. Mm-hmm. Two, they were passionate about what they were talking about. And three, they communicated it in a way that was engaging, understandable. I can't say that I had any standout lecturers in my undergrad but I do recall really remembering the really boring ones yeah and thinking why are you even here Mm -hmm. if you don't care about what you're talking about and you've got you know there's nothing innovative about this and and you know as a learner it should be fun it should be engaging it it should be all of those things. And obviously they're all ideals and ideal world and there's life circumstances that influence this stuff at various points in time. But, you know, it's kind of that old thing of if you can't explain a topic to someone as if they were a seven-year-old, yeah, then, you know, maybe you're not educating it as effectively as you could. Yeah, absolutely. I remember, and this is not to blow my own trumpet, but... <laughs> I won the <laughs> I, I won the <laughs> the three minute thesis competition for our department, and it was yeah, you know, ramming four and a half years of work into three minutes, and that is that is an acquired skill. Like you have so to, hard. it is incredibly difficult to do that, and also quite a hit to the self-esteem and confidence because you're Mm. like, oh, my God, or like writing your thesis. And I remember writing, I think it was one paragraph and that amount, like what I wrote in that one paragraph took me 18 months to actually, you know, work up in the lab, replicate, you know, really nail it out. So, but, yes, trying to optimize and I guess have an efficient way of of teaching people is is quite difficult to do but I feel like if you're passionate about it as you say it becomes a bit easier yeah and I think like there is a science to education like there's decades of science about how we should approach education how we could how we should consider learners preferences how does the brain process new information like we have so much science on that stuff and if you're if if you are employed as an educator and you don't know that science Mm. then you're doing something wrong yeah yes 100% I definitely know that I'm a visual learner I've already picked up that my daughter is a visual learner and so when we're when we're doing things, I can't just stand there and say, just go do this. Or we're mm. learning something new. I actually have to physically do it with her and say, watch this. See how this is going here? And she's like, oh, okay, yeah, bang, gets it straight away. Whereas if, you know, it was just auditory or even, I guess, oh, she's okay with instructions, like pictures of instructions. She's not too yeah, bad okay. with that. But, yeah, she's a doer. She's like me. She needs to see it in action. Okay, we're going to shift gears. And this is 
one of the fundamental reasons why I wanted you on the podcast. We're going to talk mm. about crabs and not the crustacean type, Jess, and for all those playing <laughs> at home. Thanks for that clarity. <laughs> I know. When I said to Mika, I said, oh, we're going to talk about crabs. She goes, what? What kind of podcast is this going to be about? And I was like, <laughs> listen and learn. Now, <laughs> Jess, please walk us through the acronym CRABS and also I would, I'd love to understand again the premise and context of this. Where did this come from? Did you have a moment in time? Because Mika and I did when we came up with this podcast. We were like there's so much fluff out there. We need to start mm. one bridging the gap between academics and researchers and getting their science to the people now, not just like sitting on the internet for like 10 years and it becoming dusty on shelves as well. But was there a, was there a compounding effect or was there a moment in time where you're like, that is it, I'm, I'm doing it, crabs it is? Yeah. So, so I guess to answer that, I need to explain a little bit about my Instagram account. Yes. So... Back in 2019, I was getting towards the end of my PhD and I I was really, I was really feeling motivated that I needed to have a presence online to speak to the public about health stuff. I'd been doing it on my own private account and people were responding and like engaging. I thought, okay, maybe there's something in this. And secondly, that whole thing about nurses, mm-hmm. I, I was like, there are no nurses that are on social media that I knew of at the time that were educating. Mm-hmm. So there was plenty of nurse influencers that were selling discount codes, which <laughs> no shade to you if that's what you do. Yep, that's that's your jam. That's cool. That, that's fine. But I was like, hang on a minute. Why, like, why aren't nurses doing this? Like mm-hmm. this is nurses' bread and butter. We translate science all the time to our patients when they're in the hospital. Yeah. So this is like the obvious thing to yep. be doing, you know. So I started out just talking about, Oh, little different topics like, you know, IV vitamin drips and, you know, popular wellness things that I was like, you know, I've got some science and I should be sharing about this to help inform the public. As time went on, I, you know, connected with people. I started noticing that there was lots of shouting going on mm-hmm. towards the general public. Like oh, I perceived it as shouting yeah. anyway. Yeah. Whether it was is, is a whole different story. But I kind of started seeing, you know, people are saying, you know, you should know better or you should know this science or that. And I'm thinking, hang on a minute, maybe we should take a different approach to this. Maybe we should think about how can we build up capacity in the general public to be able to sift through the high volumes of information that they're reading online. I want to give them the tools to find it themselves. So instead Mm -hmm. of me coming in and saying, this is right, this is wrong, Mm -hmm. actually, here's a framework that you can apply, that you can build up your, I guess, digital and health literacy to be able to appraise what you're reading. And then it becomes less about, you know, power imbalances and hierarchies and and more about empowering people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I, you know, that, I figured out that was my niche, that was my slant on things, and I just kept rolling along. And it was probably early in the pandemic, sometime in 2020, mid-2020, or sometime early last year, 2021, I was like the educator in me. I've got to, <laughs> I've got to get like a mnemonic. I've got yeah. to have like this little acronym yeah. that I can help people to remember because it's one thing to be able to rattle off, you know, look for conflicts of interest, but how can I help people to just think of something real quick and go apply. Yeah. So I came up, to my great delight, (laughs) an acronym that created a word. Yes. Every every science (sighs) educator's dream. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) I have reached that next level. Um, Anyway, so so what it is is, is crabs. It's literally a crab and I use a picture of a crab to kind of help people remember, but it's conflict of interest. So when you look at information, do they have a conflict of interest, whether it's financial, political, what's their agenda when they're putting that information out there? Mm-hmm. And and also like do they have a, a, you know, some sort of bias? Now there's a difference between conflict of interest and bias. They're two different things, but they are linked. And so I was like, okay, so there's one thing. That's one thing that makes you go, hmm, I might need to check that information out a little bit more. 
Can I expand on can I expand yes. on that? Conflict of interest as well for people. And I I think people need to understand that if they're and a lot of people are accessing scientific journal articles more and more these days, which yes. I think is great. And just so people know, authors of the paper need to declare a conflict of interest or not. Yep. And it will be at the bottom of the journal article. It will actually have a section and they will need to describe it all there and also where their funding has come from as well, which in some places we could say a little bit of conflict of interest there depending on who's funding your trial. Yeah, Yeah. and look, there's there's nuance around that too, Mm. as you would know, in that sometimes you do get funding from organisations but they have no involvement in the research. Like it's very separate and it still means that there's a conflict. It still means that's there, but there are grades of conflict. Yeah. And, and so as an author, um, every time I publish an article, I'm requested to disclose what conflicts do I have and what funding did I receive. Mm. Now, if a paper does not have those things declared, then that's actually a sign that the quality of the journal is a bit rubbish. Yeah. Yeah. So that's and, a really important yeah. point. And that's, like that's, said, that's another thing that we should flag as well, Jess, that there's different, I guess, you know, as you said, quality of journal articles. Some things are peer-reviewed, so, you know, reviewed by other people yeah. within the field and scrutinised quite heavily, like, you know, a <laughs> nature paper, you know, or science paper. That could be, I mean, I've seen it, years of yes. back and forward between reviewers and things like that. No, you've got to go back and do this experiment. No, we don't believe this. Go repeat that, da-da-da. Whereas other ones, I mean, are, I mean, there's probably articles that just get published that yeah, have so, very so minimal actually, or no reviewing. Yeah, so this ties really well into the R, so the references. There we go. So, so we can so we can talk about that and expand on that. But basically, you know, we see people making claims online, very bold claims. And what I want to know is, is there a reference to back that up? What is the quality of that reference? And mm. so that's what you're alluding to there, Renee, is so there's actually a type of publishing called predatory publishing. And basically it's a publishing mill house. So they basically solicit academics and they typically target junior academics, unsuspecting junior academics that don't have the knowledge. And they basically say, you can publish whatever you like if you pay us a fee. And what we're finding is that is increasingly happening. Mm -hmm. And so that means that there's no peer review, there's no quality markers. The other really interesting part is that there are different like levels of journals in terms of, you know, is it more prestigious, is it not? And that will depend on the field. It'll change between different fields. But actually what we're also seeing is that there's lots of fraud. Yes. So so we've seen that with COVID in particular, that treatments, people that have a political or financial agenda have fabricated data to make an outcome look positive. Mm. Now there are there are scientists that are dedicated to like breaking down that stuff and it's like really detailed and and it's uh, they're amazing. But that's something to think about is references. And and do they quote like just one reference or do, does the person have a broad knowledge of the body of literature or have they just cherry picked something that suits what they want to say? Yeah. And there's also different types of papers within journals, so an opinion piece is an opinion. It's not a, like it might fuel conversations in the field and it might spur on research, but it's not definitive. Mm-hmm. And also what I would say to people, if you are reading papers, don't, you cannot just read the abstract. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but that drives me, that just drives me nuts. But that's what we're seeing a lot is people yeah. will cite a paper and I'm like, did you actually read, read that? Because that says the opposite of what you said. <laughs> yes. I have had many discussions with people, you know, I, I probably don't spend as much time doing this anymore, but I've seen, you know, big splashes of, you know, a quote and yeah. I'll say, oh, that's really interesting. Where's the reference? I'd love to read that paper. What did that, like, what did that say? And then they've been quite hesitant to pass on that reference. And then once I read the reference <laughs> and the whole paper, yeah. I'm like, 
Um, that's an interesting interpretation. How did you come to that conclusion? Because I actually thought the opposite. So yes, yes. people are reading just the abstract, which sometimes they're not able to access the full paper because you've got to pay, yes. which is a whole nother, yeah. I think, podcast. Yeah. But on that, I talking about paying, I just wanted to flag back when you were talking about, you know, junior researchers being targeted and and just being offered, okay, just pay us a fee and you can publish whatever you like. I just wanted to flag to the listeners the motivation around that and why that is most likely happening. And that is the fact that more publications on your CV will equal a better opportunity, likelihood of getting grants to pay for your research. And so Mm. that is why some people do that. Now, you know, grant boards will obviously look at the calibre of the journal articles that you're publishing in, but nevertheless, in a matrix system, a lot of the time that is why people, because it's it's that whole publish or perish kind of scenario. So just giving the listeners a bit of framework around that, because you're probably thinking, why would yeah, you do yeah. that? Why if would it's you rubbish? Do that? Yeah. You know, you're not going to yeah, get yeah. anywhere. It's jobs. It's, yeah, it, exactly. it's job security. It's grant funding. It, it might be the difference between you and someone else getting a $10,000, $20,000, $100,000 grant. You know, you just don't know. Yeah. But yeah, I just wanted to flag that to everyone. Yeah. So then um, the next one. So we've gone through CR. Now it's A. So the author. So looking at who's the author, who's making this statement. Do they have training in the area? Mm-hmm. What type of training? There are certain terms, particularly in Australia, that are not protected by law. For um, So, for example, the title doctor is not protected, so anyone can call themselves doctor. And that's, that's for complicated reasons. It's because the original doctor was a doctor of philosophy, not a doctor of medicine. And so um. if they protected that then it means people that have completed PhDs have to be given you know like it's just complicated so that the title doctor is not protected in Australia same with titles like naturopath and nutritionist yeah so that can make it really difficult because that means that anyone can do anything to call themselves those things which which makes things tricky. And and that's important not to say that somebody can't have an opinion, yeah. but it does give you an indication of how much knowledge they might have in a field, how much context they will actually know. Like I don't know if you follow Romy who's the immunization nurse online. So oh. we did a lot of workshops and webinars <laughs> last year with our peers in nursing to try and give education about COVID-19 vaccines. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't pretend at all to be an immunology expert and, in fact, there's no way that I could be because I don't have additional immunology training. And so that then reflects the level of information and knowledge that I share Uh, and it limits how much I can share about that and we'll talk about that a little bit more with the final letter. But it's really important to look into the author. Um, Do they actually have any training Is it relevant training? Because what we are also seeing now is people that may have had an agriculture degree or an engineering degree go and decide to start some sort of business around health. And just because they have an authority in one area does Mm -hmm. not mean that they have an authority in another area. The other thing is B, so buzzwords. So... Buzzwords is like, you know, it's a marketing term for, you know, words that are popular right now, words that evoke certain emotion. And to me, the buzzwords can be an indication of somebody's trying to engage you emotionally Mm -hmm. and they're trying to capitalise on trends. So we see that with things like with words like inflammation or low tox or things like that, that in the scientific world, uh, low tox is actually not defined and inflammation means a very specific thing, thing yeah. but it's been used in a way as a marketing tool. And so, but other things that I look for is, you know, words that are talking about you'll die or you're, mm. you're hurting your health. Like mm. that evokes a certain emotion, right? You yeah. straight away go, oh, well, I don't want to hurt my health. Yeah. Like, yeah. Why would I want to do that? I want to protect my, you know, why would you want to expose your child to that? Oh, am I doing something wrong? Mm. 
So looking for buzzwords just to kind of get an indication of, okay, is this overly emotive? Is it trying to persuade me in a certain way? Maybe I should reconsider this information. Mm. Am I, the final am I one, being clickbaited? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and we see it, you know, yeah, news yeah. articles, everything, you know. And then the final one is scope of practice, uh, which is a really important one because as we've seen more health professionals come and use online platforms, we've typically seen more junior health professionals because they're digital natives. Mm. You know, when I started my nursing degree, Facebook became a thing. <laughs> and But it wasn't something that I was like overly active with. And so social media has changed a lot. And so it's very easy to misrepresent your expertise online because you know, as a nurse, nurses are one of the most trusted professions. Mm. So uh, people are going to go, oh, nurse, great. I can trust that person. Yeah. But if you don't look into my background, how do you know? Am I still a practicing nurse? Yeah. Do I have any postgraduate degrees? How far out from my degree am I? Am I a new graduate? Am I, you know, three years out or that kind of thing? And not that that means that you can't have an opinion. Again, you can absolutely contribute to the conversations, but you must clearly identify where your limits are yep. and where your your gaps are. And I think that's really important for the public to know that it's really easy to portray yourself a certain way when it's not actually the case. Yeah, 100%. Oh, I love this Crabs thing so much. And I think like I was just kind of refreshing myself on it. And I think one of the things that you commented on was the fact that it takes time to go through each and every one of, of those kind of points when you're, when you're reflecting on the information that you have in front of you. And that's right. It takes time to do that, but it's so worth it because I see, for example, uh, we we're very clear in the beginning, Mika and I, we're both biochemists. I'm an immunologist as well. She's more into like molecular biology and, and things like that. Mm. And when we became postpartum doulas, although we have basic understanding on supporting mothers for breastfeeding, you know, we both breastfed our um, children and we had some basic training in it. We're not lactation consultants. You know, yeah. we would never, you know, moonlight as a lactation consultant mm. nor would we moonlight as you know a sleep consultant or a sleep specialist and that's something that we identified very early on but we also understand that that's very important for the clients that we see which is why we partnered with possums which is an amazing organization full of you know IBCLCs and, you know, people who are yeah. well-versed in assisting people and supporting mothers and fathers with sleep and things like that. And they have a fantastic platform, which we sign up all our mums to and say, don't slip down the Google rabbit hole of like all these crazy parenting forums where I've seen some of the stuff. And I've been that mum. I've slipped down that yeah, rabbit all, hole. Absolutely. And it's terrifying. And you do that thing yeah. where you're like, oh, my God, oh, my God, am I a bad mum? What did I do? What did I do? And so that's where all of that information, it's kind of like they've done the crab stuff for you. Like it's it's all yeah, fine absolutely. This is a portal of like, you know, well-curated information backed by research and things like that. And I, I think particularly in our field when, you know, mothers are targeted with very much so things and you are very open to information because of the brain remodeling and things like that, particularly newborn mothers and sleep deprivation and go on and on. And, and our, even without those things, oh, our brains want certainty. Correct. We do not cope with certainty. So it's much easier to have an explanation for something, even if it's inaccurate, yes. than to go, I don't know and I'm not going to know. Exactly. 100%. I couldn't agree more. And I was actually talking to a client the other day exactly about this, about, you know, the newborn kind of behavior, the very, very normal newborn behavior, which is, you know, cry fussing in the first kind of 16 mm. weeks and things like that. And I said, let me guess, you're probably sitting there going, 
he's got colic, he's got reflux, there's something wrong with him, da-da-da-da. And she's like, yes. And I'm like, you know what? Unfortunately, there's probably not. Like 80 to 90% of children exhibit the exact same scenario and there's nothing medically wrong. It's just that I think these days we are, um, you know, tuned to go, oh, we need to find some sort of pathological explanation for this and we're going to pigeonhole because it's going to make me feel better. I've got a diagnosis. <laughs> and, it, and it would make you feel yeah, better. it does. It's That's like, the oh, reality. I can yeah. name it and therefore yeah. it's I'm okay now because I've named it. But, you know, it, the scenario is that that's just normal. Like, unfortunately, that's just it. Like, there's nothing yeah. you can do about it. You just ride the wave. I know. And it is, it's really hard. And I remember, you know, when I was a new mum and, and you are, you, you know, you're bored. Yep. You, you got uh, information at your fingertips and you're going, oh, I, I'd want to check. Do I know this? Do I know that? Is that right? Oh, maybe I shouldn't do mm. this. Maybe, you know. And we know like there's data about, for example, like safe sleep information, about 50% of data online about safe sleep is incorrect. Wow. And, you know, we just see that in so many patterns. The apps about contraception or, you know, mum apps, most of them contain really unreliable information. Mm. And we have data on that. Like we have content analyses and we know it's a problem, which is why we must be so vigilant with how we process information. And we and we do it with, you know, what we perceive to be accurate too. You know, I always say to people, don't just trust the science. That goes against every kind of formulation of what science is. It's not about trusting it. It's about reading it interpreting it being open to the fact that the science might change yeah and being able to scrutinize it I remember that is actually so funny I remember one of the very first conversations I had with my PhD supervisor I just done on a know, like I'm junior and I'm like open to everything and I was like oh yeah and you know you get rose into glasses and you meet these amazing academics and you're like oh wow that's amazing and one of the First things my supervisor ever said to me, he's like, you need to not walk in and not trust anything that you read, but you need to be really, really critical. Like don't, just because these people have been in the field for like, a, you know, two decades before you, don't think that they get everything right because they don't. And I was like, I was like taken back by that. And I was like, mm. really? And he goes, yes. You're coming in with fresh eyes. He's like, you are in a prime position to really just go, hold on a minute, what happened here? Is that right? Like if I was to repeat that, is that exactly what would happen? So, yes, not to say that, (laughs) you know, like we're jeopardising all scientists and their publications and everything like that. But, but, you know, people either make mistakes or they misinterpret things. We're all humans. And to have Mm. a critical eye over things, I think, is it would be remiss if you if you didn't do that. Mm, absolutely. I'm going to change gears, Jess, because now that okay. we've spoken about crabs and obviously being critical with things and really analysing things quite thoroughly, and we've spoken about the fact that, you know, in circumstances it's not about, you know, you can't have an opinion, it's just that you need to be quite clear with it and you've touched on COVID and immunisations and things like that. I would love to know your opinion on how we deal with potentially tricky conversations with people about science, you know, yep. and, and things that they may take for gospel or fact. You know, if we're entering in a discussion, and this could be, you know, someone that you see commenting on on something on social media so you have no idea who this person is versus I personally have had to have a few tricky discussions with family members and I know that this happens quite frequently with clients who you know they're bringing a new baby into the world and they might have to have a conversation with family and friends about immunizations is typically the number one thing yeah really common Yeah. yeah it's about look you know We'd really 
appreciate if you could have the whooping cough and or the COVID and or the, you know, the flu vaccination before you come and visit our new baby because obviously their immune system yeah. is so immature. What are your recommendations on being able to approach those conversations in a non-emotive, <laughs> you know, yeah. kind of way? What have you found works best? Well, I think you alluded to the first part really appropriately, which is you need to understand the context first. So is it your family member who you trust and value and you want to protect that relationship? Mm -hmm. Or is this some random on social media that you've never interacted before? You don't follow each other. You don't know who they are from a bar of soap. Don't even bother engaging with them. Keyboard warriors, I call them. (laughs) It's not worth it. And you know, so much is lost in terms of rapport building on social media. So even if you were going in with good intentions, you don't have a relationship. Yeah. And, and from my perspective, relationship is the core of how a good conversation will go. Mm-hmm. So if they're a family member, I always kind of suggest seek to understand first mm-hmm. And, and really ask open questions. So ask open-ended questions. You might have an objective of where you want to go to, but, you know, if you frame things like, oh, you know, I wanted to talk to you about expectations once we've had Bub. I have some ideas about how I would like to protect baby from X, Y, and Z, which I know you support, and I'm just wondering how you would feel about mm-hmm. this. Yeah. And you're straight away, you're framing it in a way of you, you, you're wanting their input. You're telling them in the way that you're framing your conversation, you're telling them, I value you. Mm. So therefore, I want to hear what you have to say, but I also need you to hear what my values are and what my priority is. Mm-hmm. So I always think, you know, think about the relationship, think about what it is you want to protect and like I'm quite a direct person, so I was very like, "This is what's happening." You know, I'm not telling. I'm not telling you when I'm in labour. Um, <laughs> I'm not telling you when I go home. I'll let you know when I want to see you. Yeah. I don't want anyone touching the baby. Yeah. And you'll all have to have your vaccinations. Yeah. But that was me. I had that existing relationship already with my family, and mm. they. I think they were a bit offended at first. Yeah. But my sisters have gone on to do the same. So I feel like I've, yeah, you know, you've created precedent. I've created a precedent. <laughs> Good on you. <laughs> no, but most, you know, the other thing I think about when you're having those tricky conversations is think about where you're having them. Okay. Is this in a busy corridor um, where it's noisy? Is it at the family dinner table where everyone's gathering to see each other for the first time in a year and you're just going, oh, by the way? Yeah. How can you create an environment? that will facilitate those conversations. But I think, yeah, when you're thinking about those things and even in, you know, we've all got mum chats that we're part of, you know, think about what what do you really need to discuss with them, what what matters, and also protect your mental health. Mm -hmm. These conversations are challenging and your mental health should be a priority in how you approach them. Yeah. Oh, that's great advice. I, I know in some instances some of our clients, we offer this as part of our service that they essentially just brain dump on us on like all the things that they want to say. And then we craft the message for them. In a previous life, I used to be an attorney as well. So I'm I'm like, I can do this in a really funny PC way, but still get the message across. Yeah, it's one of the. That's a wonderful resource. I'm sure they they value that a lot. It's helped a lot of our clients because they're like, I just don't, and you know, they get to the pointy end of the pregnancy where they're just like, I'm so tired, I'm so overwhelmed, I just can't do this right now, and it's totally fine. So yeah, we craft those messages for our mummers. And yeah, I do put a bit of comedy in there. I find that breaks the ice a little bit as well yeah. for some people. But as as you said, typically people are taken aback, you know, in the beginning, oh, why would you want not want me there? And you know, things like that. But mm. once you explain the reasoning behind it, I you know we need space as a time for family to kind of bond together and things like that. They, yeah. they get like, it. My milk's coming, I'm just sitting there with <laughs> I'm going to be completely nude, you know. Yeah, I don't want anyone around. (laughs) Look, and I think it is a, like, it's a societal shift. Yeah. 
things have changed and, you know, the models of care have changed. Like, you know, continuous midwifery care is like the ideal model and all of those things that were not the case perhaps when our parents had us. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to talk about one quick topic before we do our rapid fire at the end. And I just wanted to touch on this and it probably could be in and of itself a whole episode, Jess. Mm-hmm. But plagiarism, oh. particularly, particu- and, and maybe that can be a thing. Like I just want to really just quickly touch on it yeah. and maybe this is going to lead into a part two for us um, because I love talking to you about this stuff. <laughs> this stuff. Yeah, so, but plagiarism yeah. on social media, can you just give us like three top things that I guess people don't understand? It's absolutely rife. Of course. And oh, it's I, terrible. again, I think it comes back to this whole keyboard warrior thing where it's like anonymity, you can't touch me, you can't do anything, da da da. I'm just going to continue to do it. But can you just like name three top things where you're like, people don't know that? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So I guess to, let's define plagiarism. Yes, so, yes. plagiarism is reusing somebody's work, whether directly partially or paraphrasing an idea without giving credit to the original thought owner. Mm -hmm. And like you said, plagiarism rife on social media because the dynamics of knowledge sharing have changed. Yeah. So whereas we had that kind of top-down approach before, we now have this reciprocal sharing of knowledge. So where I see this is you read a post and it looks very polished and it looks very authoritative and you go, but I know that that person does not have training in X, Y, and Z. How on earth would Mm. they know that? And you just, what you need to do is think about the content if you're suspicious of it being plagiarised and it could be just that they don't reference somebody. Yep. And we're actually, I'm actually seeing it between peers, like health professionals, peers. I'm actually seeing content that's copied from others Mm. that they're not giving credit that actually I was inspired by. Yeah. And so that's why I did this. Yeah. So be aware that um, that is happening. What you can do is just do a quick uh, copy and paste of the content, chuck it in Google, and it'll come up straight away with other articles that contain that information if it's a direct copy. Yeah. The other thing that you can do is many of us now have access to Grammarly. Mm -hmm. Um, which is a grammar checker. It also has a plagiarism checker in it. Mm. So uh, so it happens on social media, but it originally plagiarism happened in academic literature. Yep. And I actually discovered some plagiarism in some academic literature a few weeks ago where I went, hang on a minute, that's a really strange statement and I've read that somewhere before. <laughs> oh, it was just the way that it was worded. It was, you know, those things that stick out in your head. Yeah, because you're, like, you're like, what's a unique thing to say? There's a particular a tone in and how people write and then you're like yeah okay and I was like oh I've read this before where have I read this yeah and anyway so I looked into it and I'm like this is a direct copy and then I went to the new this new paper and I put it through Grammarly and found there was multiple other instances of plagiarism Mm -hmm. in that so now I've written to the editor-in-chief and said you know blah blah but yeah but I guess for plagiarism it's there it can be intentional it can be unintentional and if you're a, a, a consumer of social media, just do be aware it is quite, it's quite hard to spot, I yeah. think. There's no serious ramifications either, which is kind no. of like, that's why people are like, oh, I don't care. Yeah. You know, it just, You'll notice that like if you follow certain types of accounts and they all post about similar topics, like obviously there's going to be crossover. Yeah. But if there's like crossover to the point that that person posted this on Monday and this person person posted that on Tuesday and it had all the same points, mm. then I'm thinking that person has derived their inspiration from that other person and they haven't acknowledged them. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Mm. I think that's going to be a whole nother podcast. That's a deep dive. Yeah. Because <laughs> yes, that's something that's messy. I'm, I'm quite passionate about as well because as I said to you, you know, there was probably about a year ago where I was consuming a lot of social media and I was thinking, oh, my God, you know, where did you get that statement from? And that's a really interesting 
quote unquote yeah. fact. Um, you know, where's the reference for that? So, it, it, and it comes back to, um, uh, you know, the crabs acronym as well. That's right. If, if you're not, if it's not your scope, I kind of feel like, uh, I mean, it's just me personally. Stick in your lane. People will trust you more as as a you know a person on the so on social media. As soon as you start to branch out, it just gets sketchy, and I I feel like it becomes quite obvious as well. So that's just my opinion, <laughs> but I do try to stick in my lane. And also, I just wouldn't even dream to you know make a comment about that stuff. I, I think my confidence level would just be like, oh my god, I wouldn't even know how to talk about that. Um, yeah, and that's probably a whole other topic is Dunning-Kruger effect. Yes. Where somebody has high levels of confidence but low levels of knowledge yes. and they overstate their knowledge. Yes. That, okay, I'm putting that down as part two. <laughs> okay, just we're going to wrap up with a, a bit of a rapid fire and it's going to be a, like a bit, of, um, a bit of professional, a bit of personal as well. Okay. First question, most outlandish oh. meme or comment you've seen on social media? Oh. <laughs> or it can just be. Oh, okay. Like no, t- I've got. Oh, one. you've got one? Okay. okay, go. I've got a great one. Yes. Earlier this year when I got my daughter vaccinated for COVID, somebody sent me a DM to wish me well and hope that my daughter survived because there were tentacles in the vaccine. Tentacles? I've not. I've heard a lot about the vaccine, but I've not heard about the tentacles. Okay. And how, anyway, how, obviously there are no tentacles in the vaccine, just to be clear. How but, is your uh, daughter, Jess? Any tentacles? Oh, she's alive. She's alive. She's alive. Excellent. Very we just well. need to clear that up. Fabulous. Yep. Okay. Next question. Top tip for mothers if they are consuming social media? Try avoid it in the middle of the night. <laughs> That's and, um, be sceptical of everything. Okay, I love that. Uh, what was your go-to resource when you became a mum? Probably the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. Okay. Was there... So content on their website or Yeah, people- so they have a they have a really excellent website that has like layman interpretations yes. as well as health professional guidelines. Yeah. And they now have a wonderful podcast that they talk about health science. They do. I looked at that the other day because I was keen to get a particular guest um, from that podcast um, over mm. here. So that is um, to be continued on that one. Okay, and last question. What do you keep on your bedside table? Uh, my watch and my water bottle. Oh, very minimalist. And a, there's a lamp, like there's a light on there. Oh, and my phone. Okay, I love that. All right. And in the interest of, I guess, the conversations that we've spoken about, we have been yeah. inspired by Brene Brown to ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> love it oh my goodness Jess it has been amazing this hour has just whipped by oh my goodness I've got notes for part two I'm very excited if you will come back on the podcast which I hope you will (laughs) depends how you make me sound (laughs) look we um we don't heavily edit actually we we keep everything pretty freestyle so there's virtually no editing which cool yeah I would love to have you on the podcast again because I think this is a topic which needs so much more oxygen. It just is not, I don't think it's it's cutting through to the people that it needs to cut through to. And to have, you know, parents be more informed and understand, as you say, have that framework to work through the information that they are receiving is so valuable, so, so valuable because I've seen time and time again people see a piece like a meme, a post, a comment, whatever it is, and there is just this spiral into anxiety and stress and overwhelm. And for some people, the compounding effect is can be quite catastrophic. So I, I am so excited and a big, like, clap to you, Jess, for taking the initiative 
and making this as part of your you know your life's work at this at this present moment because we need more people like you out there doing this it is such an amazing thing to do you're not getting um, i mean you're not getting paid to run your social media account you're not getting kickbacks no. or anything like that no. this is just simply you know your passion to as you say educate and empower the people of the world and i love it you're amazing <laughs> Thanks so much for having me and indulging me and talking about all of this. <laughs> Amazing. Till next time. Thank you so much, Jess. See you later. Bye. Bye. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services, including our postpartum in-home care and our fill your freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.